0: Right, Man, Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 332. Jason Lindgren is with me and Max Stadnick. And we will be covering uh, natural building methods. We'll be doing rammed earth. Hopefully we'll touch on uh, straw bale building. Uh, I was big into that and thought I might actually build a straw bale house at some point in my life. Uh, when I first started thinking about this, it was not easy in San Diego because they tried to hold all their codes over your head. Uh, But suffice it to say, a lot of people are looking back at the idea of homesteading, growing your own food, uh, building things that are more in step with nature, and I think finally becoming aware of the idea of the angles of sorrow, which are typically cited as 90-degree angles. Uh, Ironically, the most important angle in Freemasonry. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And
1: a very fine good morning, and indeed, people are starting to look at new ways, which are actually the old ways.
0: Yeah. Back to the future. One thing about that movie was right. Uh, But do we have anything? We're kind of way ahead right now. Yeah, we are way ahead. And we got a hell of a week coming up. So let's uh, let's jump in here. Welcome, Max. Morning, Morning. gentlemen. So will you be accepting contacts? Do you want to give out contact information? And you are an hour one. Uh, If you give out emails and things like that, you can be overwhelmed. Uh, That's fair warning. Not kidding. Uh, What would you like to do? Absolutely. Uh, We're here to help people. Okay. Uh, Where can people find you? you got a website or any other contact you want to offer. Uh, You can do this again an hour or two uh, to a slightly smaller community too. Sure.
1: So you can find uh, myself, my business partner for the Rammed Earth building under www.rammedearth.info. And you can find my own uh, standalone website at www.thewarriorising.com. Okay. What part of the country are you in, Max, if you don't mind?
0: I'm on uh, Vancouver Island in Canada. Ah, okay. So, how long have you been into this more natural approach to building? Difficult to
1: peg a date to it because your interest gets peaked. In, uh, but I would put it somewhere around 2001 was when I first got seriously interested in this. You know, I have a fairly eclectic and diverse background as far as work goes. But coming out of the military, I wanted to teach myself how to build a house. So I thought the best way to do that would be to spend some time with each of the trades, you know, spend some time with a bricklayer, a plumber, an electrician, a carpenter, and sort of learn the basics to teach myself house building. And while I was on that journey, which was in the 80s, I watched building materials shift from straight dimensional lumber to engineered woods and watched these engineered woods fail in a number of ways in housing. And I just thought... This is not good building methodology, and there's got to be a better way. Uh, So I just started researching, and actually, Crow, the first thing I came across was straw bale building. So I went out and uh, found someone that was teaching it. Uh, He was teaching uh, what they call uh, load-bearing straw bale, which is practically impossible to get past in North America, and then went on to cob and the various earth building methods. So that was sort of my journey uh, into the natural building world.
0: So the first time I, it must've been the late eighties was my father made me aware of straw bale building. And we actually had plans at some point to try to make my first house be straw. And so people know there it's basically a bale of straw, which becomes the walls. You know, you think of Adobe mud or something, there's ways to cover it so that it looks like a wall when you're finished. But what grabbed my attention is living in San Diego Sometimes in the winter, you can get down right around freezing. It can get cold, but in the summers, you get, I mean, I saw 116 the last few years that I was in San Diego. And what I learned about straw bale was, I forget what they cited, 24, 26 inch thick walls or something gives you a static temperature year round inside the house. And I thought, you know, how, how in the hell is it that we haven't, you know, at least switched to these ideas in the building. And yet, like you say. San Diego is a perfect example. The boxes and rectangles and craptacular houses are just like someone throws a handful of seeds out and a whole new neighborhood sprouts. Um, but what was the first kind of method you got into? Was it straw bale? Have you ever built a straw bale?
1: Yeah, I've worked on a bunch of straw bale uh, structures. Like I said, the first one was a, a load bearing one. And that's essentially where you you build a, uh, the straw walls on a foundation a grade beam and then you you sort of crank them down with wire in, and squish them and then you pour a bond beam on top which you attach the roof to. The problem we have there in in North America is that it, there's nary an engineer in sight that's going to put a stamp on that for you if if that's the road you're going. So it's uh usually what you see is a post and beam um structure which is infilled with straw. That's that, that you can get an engineer's stamp on. But one of the problems is um, you're not going to be able to build that house in a city, probably. Uh, if you look at row housing and the way neighborhoods are built now, uh, they don't want a row of, of, of uh, row houses. And then one, you know, what they would consider an eyesore, a straw bale, or rammed earth house sticking out on the end. So you're more likely to be out in, in, a, in an older neighborhood or ideally out in the country somewhere to build.
0: But well, in San Diego, I became aware, I think it was straw bale building society or something along those lines, I've forgotten, but they were having just immense hurdles to try to get through because the codes kept coming down on them. And it almost looked to me like what was going on was they knew they could build these beautiful houses at a fraction of the cost. And then the code police come in and the costs start getting driven up and finally If I remember correctly, I think it was in the late nineties. I remember reading that a company, where was it? I don't even know if I'm getting this right. Might've been Arizona or somewhere like that had finally began to produce, uh, straw bales to supposed code. Um, but what initially got my attention was you don't need heating per se or, or cooling if you do it right. And it's a fraction of the cost, but did you run into this too? Where the code police are just driving costs up through the roof? Absolutely.
1: If we back it up a step, what we have at work here, like in many industries are powerful lobbies of companies and, and uh, sectors that are producing building materials, and they don't want that messed with. So if you're, if you're building a, uh, one of these natural homes, you're not going to use things like drywall and asphalt shingles. And uh, so you can imagine that the people who produce those things want to do the best they can to marginalize these kind of building methods.
0: And when did you uh, first start seeing all that switch over? You were saying the late eighties is when they started going from more natural things to the uh...
1: Right. So if you imagine your, your, you know, maybe your grandmother's house there was a, a, a stick-built house with no insulation. And, you know, we can see examples of these colonial style houses around today in Canada and the United States out east. When they begin to put insulation in the walls and trap moisture, we begin to have rot. And then, so to deal with that problem, they they add vapor barriers. And then, once you add a vapor barrier, then they bring in modern drywall. And then it advances again as we cut down all the old growth forests. Now somebody comes along and says, "Hey, I've got a better way to make a sheet of plywood. Let's grind this tree up, stick it in a vat, cook it with glues and resins and and formaldehyde, and and squish a board out and build a house out of that." And so what we first saw was OSB oriented strand board, this, this four by eight sheets of, of chipboard, a lot of people call it, used a sheathing on the house on the walls. And then it went to the roof sheathing, and then it went into the flooring, and then it went into actually structural members um, uh, like uh, joists in the floor system. And firemen call this uh, their nickname for OSB is gasoline board because it burns hot, fast, and toxic in a fire. So often at the, your local fire hall, they will have a chart on the wall that says when a neighborhood was built. <laughs> and if the uh, if, if your house is built after a certain date, they know they have less time to go in and rescue you in a house fire uh, because they're not going to be able to see what they're doing in that black smoke.
0: Code was OK with this, Max? Yes. Yeah, this was they- all coded pyrotechnics.
1: Exactly. And, and so the Underwriters Laboratory has has uh, uh, put its its blessing on these materials uh, saying, oh, yeah, they're just as good as like, an old fir joist, right? Mm-hmm. Only the firemen don't agree with that. So in the old days, you'd have a carpenter come in and he'd, he'd uh, build your cabinetry for you and do all your finished carpentry. Now what we see is engineered woods there as well. We see what's called MDF or medium density fiber board being used to construct uh, all, the, all the cabinetry um, and a lot of the uh, trim work in the house. And you can, you know, I think maybe everybody here has experienced a piece of MDF furniture they bought from Ikea or something or a cabinet where when you try to move that thing, you know, the screw pops and it breaks and it's impossible to repair um, and it's really heavy. <laughs> uh, so uh, these types of materials have really degraded uh, the homes we live in and they're toxic to boot. So the air quality in the home goes down and we see between that and the, and the uh, toxic cleansers and the toxic clothing, toxic bedding, we see uh, an increase in, in uh, um, things like asthma, which is directly related to the built environments in which we live and work. You know, so if your air is poisoned, you're not going to be uh, doing very well.
0: So, there, there's a crazy thing you bring up the furniture here where I am in the southernmost part of New England. There are tons and tons of houses with really old furniture. And when I'm saying old furniture, some of it may be 300 years old. And when I was young, people held on to those things as if they were valuable. Recently, antiques assessors have come through many of the homes in my area, and all that gorgeous hardwood built furniture is worth damn near nothing now. Um, it's insane. Even the mindset of uh, of what's valuable and what's well-built has seemed to have changed. And I asked him, how can this be uh, in the age of Ikea furniture that people don't love these hardwood carved or turned pieces of furniture that have been around a couple hundred years? And his response to me was mostly people don't want to carry heavy stuff around. That was his his idea of why the value had dropped. Which is insane. <laughs> Uh, even even the whole idea of what quality is, is losing its value. I guess, you know, the other night I was taking care of my mom. So I had to sit through a little antiques road show and they were doing the ones where, you know, 10 years have gone by or something. They tell you whether the value has gone up or down. Damn near everything has dropped in value um, during what's going on here. But I mean, what do you think, Max? How can it be that all this gorgeous, handmade, custom, hardwood, Many hardwoods you can't even get anymore. By the way, furniture of completely lost value. That's got to be related to the mind shift of uh, living in cubes and and rectangles, doesn't it?
1: it absolutely. Well, what I believe's happened here is is we've we've gotten away from the idea that your home is your temple, um, and it's become a commodity that's traded. So, if you talk to the average person that's out building a home, what they're really valuing is the resale value of the house. So in that way, it becomes a commodity They're They're like, well, what can I get for this if I sell it instead of approaching the build as this is a, a, a my home and my temple where I'm going to raise my family and pass this on to my children. So you can imagine that when that's the mindset, quality sort of goes out the window and we get more into this industrial idea of, of, of cranking a home out. And it's to me it's hitting the levels of the ridiculous now as we see these giant 3d printers uh this is the idea of the future of housing to to the uh, uh building industry is can we crank these things out on an assembly
0: line <laughs> well it's, that that falls into the, the tiny house idea too right it's all kind of a psyop
1: yeah well that you know when i first saw the tiny house movement happening the focus was on uh, getting out of the rat race and living in something that was a little more pure and natural, like a uh, if you know what a gypsy bardo wagon is, the old gypsy yeah, wagons, Yep. Yeah. those were handcrafted pieces of artwork, and everything in them was natural. Now, when you look at a tiny house, what you see is them being uh, a lot of times. I'm not talking about individual people, but uh, businesses they'll they'll turn these into just essentially a glorified motorhome. Um, you know where everything is built exactly the same as the house. It looks like a miniature house with drywall and siding and, and all those things on it. So that's that seems to be the problem in housing is is that no one wants to step back and build something of high quality.
0: Here where I am, I, I mean you can't avoid facing the truth in what you said. Like if I go over to Aquidneck Island, where all the supposed American royalty put up their mansions, basically chateaus and castles um, in this part of the country. All the surrounding neighborhoods where the middle class and and the others, the normals, uh, lived. So many of those are craftsmen houses. Even the, the little molding on the outside of the house is all ornate and everything. And at some point, you don't see that building going on anymore. Um, but here in New England, um, you can tell all day long that once you get I'm just going to take a stab at it because I'm guessing something like by the time you get to the late seventies, uh, the idea of these ornate buildings, uh, and making them beautiful and well-crafted goes out the window, but this is going to bring me around. If, if I had to ask you right now, okay, you're max, you're going to build a house for yourself. And of course you're going to use natural methods of straw bale of cob of rammed earth. What would be your choice to, to build your own private temple
1: well i i actually like uh a combination of of uh materials so i am my favorite has to be caw um just because of the the tactile curvilinear nature of of the building material and its ability to give us angles of joy in our building. Having looked at all of the methods and tried them all, the, the reason we chose rammed earth as our as our medium of choice is because of the ease of getting it passed in just about every jurisdiction. I can get an engineer's stamp on it. I can get uh, uh, architects to come along for the ride. The most abundant building material in the world is earth, and it's the most malleable too. So whatever shape you want to do, you can figure out a way to do it with, with rammed earth. And there's two versions of it. One is stabilized, meaning the addition of cement, um, and that's going to uh, allow the building to last a lot longer. And then you have the non-stabilized version. So you can do it either way. Um, it's just that in North America and in other jurisdictions, we we choose to do the stabilized version so that we don't have any problems with. This is a person's generally largest purchase they're ever going to make in their life. Is is a is a home. So. We want to make sure that that goes as smoothly as possible. I love the the earth building methods, uh, all of them, and uh, straw I like too. But I got to say,
0: uh, we just have an easier time of it with with uh, rammed earth. So, how you know, you said you'd combine rammed earth or you would combine rammed earth and cob. So, first of all, what does that look like? Does that mean the main building is rammed earth and little offshoots are cob, or is the, the upper part of the building cob? And by the way, please describe to everyone what cob is so they have a good idea of it in their mind.
1: Yeah, cob is, is just simply a mixture of, of uh, mud and straw mixed together in different consistencies, depending on what you're shooting for. Right. Um, it's a bit straw bale, cob are very similar to each other. Um, when combining methods, you may choose to do like a rammed earth envelope, meaning the, the foundation, the walls, and uh, maybe even part of the roof or earthen. And then you can add in other natural building materials like um, dimensional lumber, meaning lumber that's never been treated with something toxic. Uh, we've, we've forgotten the old ways on how to preserve wood. Uh, that was simply oil and wax. If you remember, maybe, uh, if you're like me, Crow, you remember your grandmother doing her hardwood floors back in the day, about yeah. once every six months, she'd roll in, strip the floor, re-oil it if needed and, and, uh, wax it. And if you ever dropped anything on a hardwood floor, it was fairly easy to repair. If you drop something on modern laminate flooring, um, you've got a problem. Uh, so these modern building materials are not durable. What's come along is we've gotten lazy as a as a people. We don't want to do anything, so we ask for maintenance free material. And the building industry gives us materials that they call maintenance free, but at the end of the day, they really aren't. They're subpar in terms of their ability to withstand the forces of time and human activity. So we can see that in things like uh, like laminate flooring, where it's the exact antithesis of 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 what we would call sustainable so they go into the forests of in indonesia they cut down the forest they plant a stand of of bamboo Um, they cut the bamboo down they stick it into a a machine chop it up just like osb um, mix it with all the chemicals and preservatives that they have um put it in an extrusion machine extrude a board out uh palletize it, ship it 5,000 miles to North America, goes to Home Depot, and then you put it in your kitchen and you think you've got something sustainable because they put a little green leaf stamp on it. But I I would argue that that's the furthest thing from sustainable you're ever going to
0: get. I Actually, I know quite a bit about the bamboo thing, and I'll just suffice it while you're here to say, like so many people will get that towel because it says it's made out of bamboo. It's one of the most polluting methods imaginable, what they do to those fibers to get them soft. But sorry, Um, it's a good point to let people know, don't don't be fooled. This is bamboo. This is, you know, uh, it's some of the worst polluting in the world goes on with all these natural materials. But sorry, you were on a path.
1: No, that's okay. Uh, So words have meaning and sustainable is kind of a throwaway word. I mean, like if I say what is sustainable to you, it's going to conjure up an idea in your head that I guarantee is going to be different than the one I have. So we have to be a little more precise in our language when we're we're in the the building world. So the building world and the people who supply the building world are always trying to make uh, uh, things seem a little more natural than they are. And what we know, and, and I'm sure we've all heard this, is local is usually the way you want to go. And it doesn't get more local than the earth. Uh, the earth is available to us wherever we go, all around the planet. The base building material of, of cob and straw and rammed earth is simply sand, silt, clay, and stone. And that's available everywhere, You know, even in the Arctic. So... Depending on the method you choose, if you're in an area with less trees than, than say, uh, where I am on Vancouver Island, you might opt for earthen walls just because it makes complete sense from a supply standpoint. Um, Whereas if I'm here on Vancouver Island in the the forest, I may choose to build a log cabin. That may make the most sense. And we like to design with a a 500-year minimum footprint as our basic starting point. And then apply what we've come up with, 33 different building principles that allow us to help you design your home in a way that most builders in the world don't even think of. When you're designing for longevity, you approach the build differently. We like to start Crow with the envelope. If we can build you a durable, adaptable envelope, you know, meaning that that thing's rock solid, bulletproof, going to last a long time, and it's able to adapt to changing technologies and, and needs. So take a modern house, for instance. Uh, if if you want to change the wiring in 100 years, you're going to have to peel that drywall off, scrape out all the spray foam insulation that's in there, <clears throat> unclip that wiring from the wall, and then patch everything back together, that's going to be very costly and very dirty and, uh, contribute to something I call, uh, the foam, uh, the foam apocalypse. Sorry, I couldn't get that out of my mouth. Um, so we've seen the problems with plastic, uh, in the world right now. Just imagine for a second as as the building industry, both commercially, industrially, and residentially has gone to this spray foam insulation. Um, if you've ever seen this stuff being installed or, or, uh, or deconstructed, millions and millions of little pellets of of spray foam break up and get into the environment. Uh, As this gets into more and more structures in a hundred years, when these things start to come down, that is going to be everywhere. It's going to make plastic look like a joke.
0: Is this commonplace? Is that because I'm still thinking about the pink. I mean, I'm aware of the spray um, instead of like the pink insulation or whatever. But is is it commonplace for that foam to be used everywhere now? It's,
1: it's very commonplace. It's less labor intensive. So a guy is coming in with a tank. He's uh, going to spray it in one day and bingo, bango, bongo, done. And they're it's uh waterproof that's one of the reasons they like it no mold is going to form on it so it, it has a benefit that way but the downside isn't today it's down the road and uh, I'm not sure entirely all the uh, spray foam products but back in the beginning one of the the active ingredient for foaming was hydrogen cyanide gas so you'll see these guys when they're when they're installing this they're in a essentially a nuclear, biological, and chemical suit with a breather, and they go into your home and they spray it, and then they tell you, oh, yeah, in 24 hours or 48 hours, this is going to be inert. But if you understand basic chemistry, you know, nothing is ever inert. It's just off gases at a lesser rate. So it's it's another toxic chemical entering the the home environment, and uh, I would argue that you would probably want to not use it.
0: Well, if mold doesn't grow on it, you know, mold doesn't grow on poison, right? Right. Exactly.
1: And, uh, what we know about mold is that mold grows on, on, uh, on, uh, organic material. So I have a friend who works for a company that does mold remediation. Um, he's a local, um, the local boss. And, uh, what he told me was that he can walk into any modern home in North America that has drywall and find mold because on the back of it is paperboard. And so that's gonna grow mold. And then you your the back of the drywall is in what's essentially a, a dark, um, warm climate. So all you have to add is a little moisture and you've got a problem. And since we're now hermetically sealing the house, this is the modern builder's idea, they're focused on our value um, to insulate the home against the cold and the and the heat. So they hermetically seal the house and they seal you in with all of the toxins. And then they bring in an expensive air recovery system. So they want to bring fresh air in from outside. Don't open a window or anything, Crow. Put in this expensive air recovery system that uh, brings fresh air in from the outside, heats it up a little and puts it in. And then you have to also take it back out. So what we see is this, uh, um, the lipstick on a pig thing happening in in these uh, uh, modern homes. They have complicated systems, which require more complicated systems, which require more complicated systems. Instead of going back to the drawing board, maybe taking a walk back in history and seeing how did our ancestors deal with this when they were building? You know, how did they solve these problems of, of mold and hot and cold and bugs? And I know, uh, you know, I, I recently listened to your episode with Christopher. Great guy. I love him. Uh, uh, man after my own heart in terms of building. And we know that when we build curvilinearly and we build to uh, uh, so that the house itself is the heating and cooling main system, um, and that we're able to bring fresh air into that um, and design it curvilinearly, uh, that we eliminate most of the problems that you find in a modern
0: home. You know, when you're talking about the mold thing, I mean, that's a good example of just more complexity, more complexity. They build with this thing that has the potential to become toxic with mold. And then the process to remove the mold is off as, you know, demo this place. Um, I had a friend in San Diego who was big into tea tree oil. Don't know if you've ever heard of it, but that stuff will end mold like on contact, um, it smells good. There's so many, he used to, he used to carry it around with them. So like when he went to hotels, he didn't want to get bed bugs or something. He would just spritz the, the whole sheets with tea tree oil. But at the time, my wife and I were living in Lemon Grove, San Diego. We we're in an older house by San Diego standards. And one of the walls got mold in it. Um, and I knew damn well, if you get someone in there, what happens next? We simply applied tea tree oil and the house smelled nice for an extended period of time. And not only did the mole die on contact, it never came back again. Um, so there's all these things that could, they're, they're all natural and they could be implemented, but it's almost like there's this unspoken bond that the more complex and the more difficult the thing is, that's the one we're going to use. Exactly. Like
1: I, I, I believe George Carlin got it right when he said, you don't need a conspiracy when proximity explains everything. <laughs> so if you, if you imagine for a second that all these guys went to college together, I'm the, I'm the, uh, inventor of, of vinyl siding. I go to my buddy, uh, who's a regulator in the U.S. government and I say, Hey, listen, man, I need you to, uh, 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 make sure that my product is out there being pushed, right? And he's your friend. So you're going to help him out. Um, we all do that. Uh, and this is how these, these products and systems come into play. Uh, one of the one of the things we've seen in recent history is a little organization called LEED, and LEED is an acronym that stands for Leadership in Environmental and Energy Design, and this is the measuring uh, checklist of of the building industry these days. and And it's nowhere in there does it say anything about natural or sustainable. They're concerned about energy consumption and and to a lesser degree the environment inside the structure, and. Like many of these regulatory uh, bodies, it was uh, bootstrapped by manufacturers. So, if I have a toxic product and I'm I'm one of the lead funders, what are the odds that my toxic product is going to get a red X as opposed to a green check mark? So, what we saw was things that made absolutely no sense from a health and uh, a sustainability standpoint entering the market and getting, and getting
0: rubber stamped as, as uh,
1: green, you know,
0: I, I have a lot of experience with lead. Um, the last places that I worked were multimillion dollar construction companies where um, as an independent contractor, I offered services. Uh, lead was just another way of the community telling itself that they were environmentally in step. That, that was the whole idea of lead at the time. I wrote a plan to launch a wind company, which failed within a year, and a solar company, which acted actually ended up keeping uh, this multi-million place going for some time later. But the point is, within that lead idea, all the people that wanted to keep their jobs jobs had to become one of the levels of lead certified. Uh, the business owners and the foreman had to be a higher level of lead certified, and they used to do things like go out uh, on their sites and make up these numbers of all the crap they'd recycled. Right. And they would, they would act like they had done something. Uh, it it was mind boggling. And, And even the solar, that's where I learned that, um, the the core values of San Diego were to appease the people. Well, 20 something percent will be renewable energy by state mandate. The moment they hit 25 percent, they make it difficult as hell for anyone to benefit from solar above that. Not only that, when they sell you a kilowatt hour, it's like umpteen dollars when you sell a kilowatt hour that you've generated back from your solar, it's like a fraction of a penny. And by the way, the Utilities Commission is setting the value for both. So I'm with you all day long. These are complete perversions of what it means to be healthy, natural, environmental, whatever the hell you want to call it. Yeah. By by the way, everywhere you see lead certified, you see the stupid little green leaf thing.
1: Exactly. And, and these, these systems, I mean, there's different systems in, in the, in England, it's Bream and there's green globes and there's passive Hosts. and there's all these, I mean, even the U S military does not use these. They use a, a much more sensible performance based metric. At least they did, you know, 10 years ago when, when lead was on the rise. Um, you know, that's, I'm interested in performance and, and health um, and, and, Sustainability, well, as well, you know, and the materials we use. So I think it was very early on into LEED. There were several major class action lawsuits against it as building owners who had bought into this and paid enormous sums of money to be LEED certified were not seeing the results that were promised. Right. So I would say to you that simplicity is our ally in building. The more simple, the more the less complicated, the less steps removed from nature that you are, the the more healthy, solid, and and consequently affordable the build is going to be. If you're just using wood from your local area and earth and a little bit of cement to stabilize it, um, then your you know that's a win in my book. Um, we have a client that we're about to build for in Northern British Columbia. They signed with us just before uh, the beer bug. And uh, now what we're seeing is uh, an enormous skyrocketing in price of lumber. And they're quite happy they chose an earthen house <laughs> because uh, the the cost is skyrocketed. I, I can't even tell you. Like, I can go out and buy uh, an ice cream and a coffee for myself and my girlfriend for less than I pay for a two by four. <laughs> I.
0: I- let me tell you something. I was looking at getting a scope tower put right before Covidius Minimus hit us, um, and they gave me a bid. It's not even livable space then more than the entire upgrading of this house that I'm living in now when my father retired uh, in, the, in the early 90s. And then after the fact, uh, the price almost doubled. And by the way, to get back to your lead idea, I can't tell you how many big clients in these industrial parks bought into the lead thing. And here's, here's the whole problem. Logically, from the beginning, their idea of what's sustainable is complete bunk. It's, it becomes, how much energy did you use? Well, that's not the metric that you should be looking at. How was the energy created? That's the metric that will always matter because energy will always be used, whether you reduce it or you don't. Um, But what happened is they started putting all these, God, what was it called? I I know you've seen them. I I worked with one of the engineering firms, was the first people to put these monitoring systems on everything that consumed energy. Um, even the ambient temperatures and everything, and they were all put online. So you could monitor, monitor how, how efficient your building was doing. And it was all bunk. And not only yeah. was it bunk, you ended up putting in all these complex monitoring things into the electrical. I mean, I know, you know what I'm talking about.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, this is, this is the, uh, what I would call first stage generation smart buildings. Yep. Right. Yep. The only place it's going to smart is in the wallet when you do that (laughs) In, In keeping things simple. Like, so maybe let me just back up a second and go of all the natural building systems. And I just give you a short list of what they are here. Like there's stone masonry, dry stone masonry, uh, log cabin style, cordwood, bamboo, timber frame, post and beam, uh, straw bale, cob. And five or six different earthen methods, from rammed earth uh, monolithic walls to rammed earth blocks to adobe, uh, and and you know just even a mud hut. Uh, those systems are simple systems, and anybody can learn how to do it. Crow, this is not like I don't have to go to school for a hundred years to learn how to build a house. I can essentially start with no knowledge. We take people that have never built anything in their lives, and in six days, we'll teach them how to build a uh, at least the foundational parts, the envelope of, of a, of a ram earth or a straw bale or a cob house. And that's money in the bank for most people. If you could get a piece of land and, and uh, um, be debt free, then you're, you're less under the restrictions of your local jurisdiction and certainly the restrictions that a mortgage would put you under. Uh, mortgage lenders want to protect their investment. So they want to have a lot of control of what you do. Um, so you're, you're you can build some of these systems with a loan, but it's it's going to be better if you don't have one. So then we get into you know what makes sense from a from a build standpoint, and we're on lead and we're on energy. So the first step, of course, is use less energy. So we're going to remove things from design like a, a microwave oven, which, uh, you know, I probably don't have to get into the pluses and, and, and minuses of a, of a microwave oven in your home. We want to reduce EMF energy in the house. Shielding against EMF is something that many of our clients are interested in. So do you want a bedroom that's free of EMF? Do you want your entire house to be free of EMF? Um, that's going to uh, be some different design parameters there. So I will usually offer someone our checklist as part of the package and they'll go through that checklist and they'll decide what's important to them. And we believe we have the most comprehensive checklist in the world for people to take a look at, and maybe we can cover a bit of that in in,
0: an hour two. I wanted to jump in there. So I I was kind of under the impression that a good rammed earth, like if you had four rammed earth walls around you, or if there were no angles of sorrow, one right <laughs> um, wouldn't that wouldn't that be EMF resistant just on the face of it Well it is like so uh a
1: four inch thick slab of, of essentially a what we call a cementous material like concrete or rammed earth um, is effective at shielding EMF radiation and it's capable of blocking 90 percent of the radiation between 500 megahertz and 8 gigahertz so a 12 inch slab is going to be even more effective and our our rammed earth walls, we're, we're usually at a minimum of 20 inches thick, often that has insulation inside it, depending on the climate we're building in. So in a hotter climate, we're not going to need a lot of insulation other than the wall itself. And straw bale is its own insulation, right? Everything has an R value, a resistance, a resistance value. The resistance value of earth is about 0.25 per inch. But see what the modern building industry has us wrapped up in this idea of our values and when we design naturally we're we're actually bringing to the table other values that are important so we have like a relative humidity value so that's the um, material's ability to absorb and release moisture without being destroyed so you can imagine that drywalls doesn't have a very good rh value whereas earth does and the, the ideal humidity for a human being is somewhere between 55 and 70%. And I tell you, if you take a modern home and raise the, the humidity value in it to 55%, you've got big problems. That's why they're hermetically sealing that. None of those modern engineered materials can take that kind of moisture level. And so the same is true of other values, uh, like a thermal conductivity value. So uh, earthen materials are going to, absorb heat from the sun and other uh, systems that you may use in your house and they're going to re-release that heat as the home cools in the evening. So instead of maintaining a constant temperature through something like a forced air furnace system where you're where it's just a steady 80 degrees or whatever you've got it's the thermostat set at, what you see is this more gradual curve of cooling and heating and the body tends to not notice it. Like if you came in if you open a door on a modern home and let all that cold air come rushing in, you're going to want to put a sweater on for a little bit uh, as the room cools down. But if you do that on a, a home that has a radiant value, then the house immediately heats back up and you don't notice it. Like your body just doesn't notice these gradual temperature changes like it does a more immediate one. So these are all factors to think of in design. When you design with natural materials – Affordability is naturally built in, certainly in the long term, right? We're we're coming in at about sometimes five percent more than a standard build, but the savings long term is difficult to calculate. So when your neighbor is repainting his walls or residing his house or reshingling his roof, you're not going to be doing that. You, you know what do you want to spend that money on? Do you want to go on a vacation? Do you want to uh, you know? It's it's uh, the the balance tips towards you in favor of you, and then when you factor in things like maybe generating your own energy, generating your own water, growing your own food, the calculations and the trade off in favor of you just gets bigger and bigger and bigger.
0: So there's a couple things. We're getting close to the top of the hour, but uh, well, I, I got to know this. I I was always under the impression that Cobb was derived from the fact that they. They made it originally with dried corn cobs. Is that true? Uh, You know, you got me there. I, I hadn't heard that actually. I'm not sure, but we could look. But here's one of the real main ideas. Is it true from your point of view as what I'll call a holistic or a natural builder? The claim that got me going on straw bales back in the day, and I do know that straw bales insulate really well, but the claim was any wall that is... I want to say 24 inches, maybe it's 26, just in that vicinity, any solid wall that is that thick should give you an ambient temperature inside, almost regardless of where you are in the country. Is that true? Well,
1: yes and no. I mean, you know, have you ever been to a large gathering and where the people are sort of elbow to elbow, you're going to find the ambient temperature inside the structure goes up and everybody's sweating. Um, so it's it's about what's the temperature to begin with inside, what is it outside, then uh, are you using passive solar to heat? You're going to get a more consistent temperature um, and less of those hard spikes of hot and cold when you insulate well.
0: I think the claims, it's been a long time since I've looked at this, but it was like 68 to 72 degrees. And the claim was, even if it snows where you are or it's over 100 where you are, uh, if your walls are this thick, usually the ambient temperature is within this range. Um, that's not a thing that, that you think is a is a correct claim. I don't think so, because uh, so we have
1: a client who did a, a round earth home in, in Ontario, and uh, it it does stay like it doesn't get all that cold in southern Ontario. And he doesn't use any heating at all, but but he he doesn't mind the temperature being about five degrees in his house.
0: What is that Fahrenheit, do you know? Uh, not off the top of my head. All the Americans just got lost. (laughs) Right. I'll look
1: that up for hour two and, and, uh, (laughs) and and get it to you. But it's basically the temperature at which you 41, by the way, there we go. We keep food at five degrees in a cold room now. Damn.
0: So that's, that's living in a
1: refrigerator 41. It is. Yeah. I mean, so we, we have like, so when we build a super insulated house like that and it's 40 below outside. Um, and we're, we've got massive radiant heating uh, um, mass in there. If we open the door wide open, it takes about 24 hours for the house to cool down to the outside temperature. Whereas a normal house, it's about one hour. So that gives you some idea of the uh, ability of materials to retain heat and re-release it into, into the home. But you need some source of heat in there. Uh, most homes overheat through the sun coming through uh, windows and walls, not actually the roof. Roofs tend to be very well insulated, even in a modern home. So what we're looking at is insulating the entire structure uh, with materials that are as natural as we can get them. But once again, that depends on the climate zone that you're in, right? It's We're, we're not worried about cold in Panama, where I just came from. Uh, we're worried about heat there. That makes
0: sense? Yeah. Uh, I want to get your take as a natural builder on the angles of joy and sorrow, and specifically in your mind, when you're building, what's acceptable angles to be called the angles of joy, or what would be acceptable angles to consider as the angles of sorrow. And I'll tell you this, I grew up in San Diego, which is heavily, heavily Mexican influenced. Um, And when I was young, more so all the things that got built. And when I was young there, so many buildings would be adobe of a kind. And From the time I was very young, I always remember uh, those curved, almost molded interiors to the adobe buildings where a fireplace was molded into the wall. You always felt best. When I was young, I always thought when I grow up, I'm living in a house like this, uh, and I had no idea that this is about the angles of joy and sorrow. So, As a builder, what do you accept as actual angles of joy? What do you accept as actual angles of sorrow?
1: Uh, well, maybe I could start that by saying that I believe your home is your temple and it it ought to caress your senses, not smash into them. There's certainly a plethora of data on how environment affects our health and well-being. The shape, composition, materials, furnishings, and people all have an impact. Uh, hard angles produce hard sounds. You know, Think of a concrete block uh, versus a concert hall when you're listening to music. Um, your experience, how you feel, With the same piece of music can be radically different based on space. So the energy or vibrations transmitted can be soft or harsh. Uh, The same is true for the play of of artificial and natural light in in angles of joint sort. So when we look at structures, we can make some educated guesses as to the uh, design origins. And it would seem that if a human being is free from an overarching and regimented power structure that has an agenda, he creates in a more natural curvilinear style where the natural world is his primary inspiration he works with nature rather than trying to subvert it right think of uh rounded huts and teepees and mongolian yurts these all come from simple cultures that were more tribal than empire or kingdom like uh, at least in their beginnings and we're very focused on the basics of survival in nature uh, you know food clothing and shelter so the minute we see a power structure exerting force and erecting more permanent structures we tend to see a trend towards these angles of sort of these hard 90 degree corners and walls. Think of uh, square blocky row housing that we're seeing now, you know, which was popularized thousands of years ago. As man sort of becomes civilized, we start to build in a way that doesn't make sense. Water courses aren't managed in the natural world. They're built, these things are built in a false image of natural order, I would say.
0: So if, you know, Chris Gardner actually made mention of a thing that I had never thought of And the moment he said it, I knew it to be correct, where he said the insects will congregate in the angles of sorrow. This is based on the 90 degree angle. So right. anyone who's not followed and doesn't get what we're getting at a 90 degree angle, if you took like a carpenter's square, think about going to the outer edges of the carpenter square, shooting energy towards the corner down both sides. When it hits that corner, there's a collision of energy flow. The angles of joy typically stated is 60. And by the way, I think I would stay at 120. Um, the doubling of a 60 degree angling is also angles of joy. Um, if you shoot energy down and you visualized it as a Y or something, you can see how the energy could converge and not be such a crash. But when Chris was talking about it, I realized, yeah, man, those are real live examples of what the angles of sorrow are bringing. And I guess I would go so far as to say any corner well, maybe not any, but almost almost any corner that is rounded, so that the corner is rounded in some way. I think you've significantly um, reduced the idea of a sorrowful angle there. Right,
1: and it can be difficult to convince people to to build this way to mirror nature with flowing curves as opposed to ninety degree corners. Um, you know, and it doesn't have to look like a beehive or an ant's nest, but just simple gentle curves can do it. You I mean you can even take the home you're in. And through interior design, uh, uh achieve a more natural kind of uh flow of energy and, and uh light in, in that home.
0: You know, we had um Derek Condon on the bee guy who was pointing out there's no angles of sorrow in what the bees are building. And that got me thinking later, um, we should quit putting the bees on those square frames. The frames should become round. And then I saw a show in Japan where they've had trouble, where it gets really cold. And now what they're doing is they're building beehives out of hollowed, thick-walled hollow oak logs and things like that to give them the insulation. Um, but then all of a sudden, what do you notice? The inside of an oak log, there's no angles of sorrow. Um, so they're going that way. But Jason, you want to get anything in here as we begin to wrap up our one? You know, I was wondering, any of the
1: designs that you used, did they come from any particular culture that you drew from or was a little bit of a variety of sources? Yeah, it comes from everything. So uh, I did a, a lot of research into um, ancient building methods and lots of different cultures, and and you know we see some commonalities um, as we go back in time. Um, things like courtyards are very common in every culture. So if you imagine uh, uh, a time when there's no nine one one, you wanted somewhere safe for the children to be, so you would create a courtyard. Often that courtyard would have a, a fruit tree going on it. You would have uh, uh, doors open on opposite ends of the courtyard where the prevailing winds blew. And then you would have misting water. So when you aerosol water, that's essentially air conditioning. Um, and we we see that going back to the um, hanging gardens of Babylon to where we have reports, uh, you know, of data we're able to look at that say the streets were actually air conditioned. And, and that blew my mind. When I read that. I mean, like they had air conditioned streets 4,000 years ago. Uh, We don't even have that now.
0: They had everything better than we have now 4,000 years ago. And everyone's right now slowly waking up to the truth of that predicament. We're not just the below on the above and below. We're almost as below as you can get right now. (laughs) Agreed. I, I, I mean, maybe we could get out of jackhammer and start going at the basement floor to get a little bit lower, uh, but we got to start going back up. I don't think we're getting much lower than we are. And, and it's not just that. Um, people have woken up to so much uh, about how probably buildings were harvesting energy from the air, um, the ideas that maybe Tesla was getting into, and they're starting to realize that we've been hoodwinked, literally. That's the right word to use. We've been hoodwinked. And all these older methods were in step and then they start to come around to why, when we're talking about, why is it that the codified systems are the most convoluted, most polluting and most fricking complex? Well, this is exactly why, um, there's a conscious effort that's been underfoot to lower human consciousness and human ability. Um, but that's all turning around now, but why don't you one more time, Max, give a website contact minimally.
1: Yes. uh, So our two sites are www.rammedearth.info, and that's r-a-m-m-e-d-e-a-r-t-h.info, and www.thewarriorrising.com.
0: All right, there it is. Uh, That'll bring Hour 1 of Episode 332 to a close. I'd like to see you all for Hour 2 with membership over at crow777radio.com, crrow 777 radiocom, radio.com. Uh, The new site is getting very solid now. Um, I'm starting to dial things in. Uh, many people hit from handheld devices. Everything is responsive and adaptive to those. Uh, I've worked out the search function is now. There are many things there and more will be coming as we dial it in. It's just not easy. you know. People don't realize how many thousands of pages are in this site. It's a lot to... To deal with, but anyhow, join us at crow7radio.com for hour two. And thank you, Jason Lindgren and Max Stadnick. And I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. There it is, man. Cheers.